Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Tom Moran here from Tom's Big Spiders. So recently I was talking about coming up with future podcast episodes. Obviously, we're winding down the summertime months where I have all the time in the world off to work on spider stuff. I'm going to be getting back to school soon, and I kind of want to have some ideas ready and have some possible podcasts recorded ahead of time because it gets stressful sometimes when work heats up, and then on the weekends, it's like straight to doing podcasts on Sunday, which takes a good chunk of my Sunday, and I was hoping to get some things, you know, give myself a little buffer, so to speak. So Billy was awesome enough to go on the Tarantula Talk Facebook group that she's part of and kind of put out a call for folks, like asking folks, what do you want to hear about? The last time I did this, I didn't get a heck of a lot of responses. And I think part of it's due to the fact that after, you know, almost five and a half years of doing the podcast, I've tried to cover just about every topic. We've we've hit a lot of topics. Obviously, things keep popping up. There's new species. There's new ways of looking at things. There's always going to be ideas. But I think a lot of the ones that were like the low-hanging fruit, so to speak, of podcast topics have been taken. A lot of times people will either ask me to do stuff I've done already, or sometimes what happens is people ask me about stuff that I honestly don't feel informed enough about to carry a long conversation around it. So for example, I have a lot of folks that will ask me for specific breeding tips for different species. I don't have that information and I'm not going to fake it. I have done some breeding, but not as much as I would like to, mostly due to the fact that breeding takes time, caring for the babies takes time, and I don't have the time with work, school, family, and all the Tom's Big Spider stuff I do. So when I eventually hang it all up and leave YouTube and maybe stop the podcast, I'm not saying I'm doing that anytime soon, I'm not saying I'm even thinking about it, but I'm saying there may come a day where I'm like, all right, I'm done, I've said all I can say, then I might spend more time breeding. So when people ask for that one, that's one where it's like, I'd love to do do something on it, but my experience is quite limited. Um, other things they'll ask for is the stuff that just won't make a whole podcast. It's like a quick question that I can answer, but I love doing those ones where we take people's questions and then I answer them kind of the whole podcast. Like we take several questions and I give my two cents on it. So she put out there, I got some really good ones and some that I had actually planned on covering at some point. So this is kind of, I don't want to say forcing the issue, but we're moving those right up to the forefront. So the first one we have that we're going to be talking about today, we got from Matthew Koljeski. Koljeski, I hope I said your name right now. I've been practicing it. I can't stand mispronouncing people's names. It drives me nuts. I believe it not Moran. I get that mispronounced all the time. Morgan, Moron, Morin. So believe me, I get it. I'm sorry. So Matthew, if I did mispronounce it, just let me know how to and I'll make sure I correct it in the next episode. And his question is keeping on keeping feeders. I know it's more than throwing crickets and roaches into tubs. Perhaps you could discuss setting up of colonies, maintaining them, feeding feeders, minimizing deaths, minimizing escapes, especially for bee lats. When you should maybe consider setting up either colonies or a lot of feeders, etc. And this is an awesome question and one that I did do an episode on feeders, but I've never done one on care. And I think part of it is because I don't know if Billy and I do it the right way or do it the best way. I think we've we've had some good success over the years. I know there's some things we do that if we wanted a wanted more active colonies, we could change some things. I think the system we currently have and what we're doing with ours, our two colonies, works for us. For other people, I will mention spots where you could tweak it to make things work better for you. And I'll get into that when I actually break down what we do. 
But first off, Billy's the one that cares for the roaches, which obviously everybody finds funny because she is in pest control, so she kills roaches during the day, and she cares for them at night. So that's always something everybody gets a big kick out of. And I'll usually do the big cleanings and stuff, usually because a lot of the times so I'll do a yearly cleaning where I just clean everything all out. You can We'll talk about how to maintain them as the year goes on. But during the summertime, when things get warmer up here, breeding starts, populations explode. It's usually time to get everything out, re, you know, clean everything up good, replace some stuff. So let's talk about, first of all, why roaches? Well, I will tell you, I can only share what I found in my own experience and why I moved into keeping some roach colonies. And obviously, I do keep crickets. I will talk at the end a bit about crickets because I find that everything takes them. There's a, a myriad of reasons why I still use crickets. However, I do have two roach colonies that I've had going for many years now. I have a B. lateralis roach colony, and I have a B. dubia colony. So usually what happens, and I'll tell you what happened in my case, is my collection started to get much bigger. Instead of just going out to the local pet store and overspending 10 cents each, I don't know what crickets are up there, probably a dollar each now. They keep going up every time I've ever bought them at a pet store. But what would usually happen is the only pet stores around at one point or close by were your typical pets, Petco, PetSmart. And I'd go in, you know, every other week or so, and I'd pick up maybe 20 crickets. And then it got to be 50 crickets. And then it got to be 100 crickets. And then it got to be, this is getting too expensive. So I found a small pet shop that was selling them cheaper. So I was picking them up there. Then that pet shop closed. Then it got to the point where I had a 100 tarantulas. I was getting some big tarantulas. And it was starting to get costly going out all the time and buying crickets. At this point, I wasn't buying, I didn't have a big enough collection to justify buying crickets in bulk, which can, which can save you a lot of money, which brings down the cost. So I was still going out and buying, you know, 100, 150, 200. So at this point, I had been using B. lateralis or red runner roaches for many years, mostly just nymphs. I would get them from Jamie's Tarantulas. She had this neat thing where you could buy the, the spider there and buy the nymphs. And it made it so much easier because I couldn't find small enough crickets or anything here to feed my sling. So it was perfect. So I'd buy nymphs, and then I just started buying lots of nymphs, having the nymphs on hand. Some of them would end up growing up. I'd feed them off. So I'd been using them for a little while, and I started thinking, you know what? Maybe it's time to set up a colony. So while doing some research, I discovered the Bedubia as well and saw how big they got. And I had some big spiders, and I'd see that a lot of my cost for crickets was because I was feeding multiple crickets to each spider. So I'm like, maybe I'll get a Bedubia colony as well. So I think I started the Bedubia colony, I want to say back in 2014, 2015, we bought, like, it was a starter pack that was specifically for starting a colony. I had a handful of adult females, couple males, all different sizes, and we set them up. We put them in the tubs, and then shortly afterwards, I decided, you know what? Why don't we get some B. lateralis as well? So we got some B. lateralis, and we set those up. And we didn't have a lot of success at first with the colonies. Now, don't get me wrong. The, they lived fine. They were, they were doing okay, but I noticed that the B. lateralis, I had read things about people keeping B. lateralis, and within a few months, having more B. lateralis than they could care for. I just had a bunch of males running around, not a lot of babies. The females weren't, it didn't seem like they were breeding. The B. dubia, they just, I didn't see much pairing going on, much breeding going on. And that was because the way we were keeping them was fine for just maintaining them if you were just feeding them all off and didn't want them to reproduce. But what we're, the way we were keeping them was not conducive towards breeding and raising up and keeping an active colony of it. So I will tell you one mistake a lot of people make and one mistake I made right off the bat is feeding them off too quickly. This is more an issue with my B. dubia, the B. lateralis. We, we did okay with right off the bat. B. dubia in particular, 
I got him in. I fed a bunch of them off. I remember at one point I had a bunch of males. And I'm like, oh, we should get some of these males out of here because I read you shouldn't have too many males for females. And what happened was I fed off a bunch of males and then the remaining males died like the next day and then I had no males for a while. So that was something we did wrong. And then temperatures. Temperatures are important when you're trying to breed. But we will get into that when we get into the nitty gritty of how to keep them. So here is how we currently keep our roach colonies. We'll start off with B lateralis. Those are the red runners, the Turkish reds, the... There's a bunch of different names. I always call them Red Runners. I used to call them Red Racers, and people would make fun of me because apparently that's not one of the names, but I liked it. So anyway, we currently have two bins with probably, I don't know, 501, maybe 500 in the other, a lot of them. And to create a habitat for your roaches, it's really very simple and, and not particularly expensive. There is... Starting roach colonies does require a bit of investment. It's not a lot, but it to get the materials you need to set them up, to get the actual roaches, it's kind of amazing how much they charge for roaches sometimes. It's going to cost a little bit of money up front. So first thing to create their habitat, you essentially need a large Sterilite container or a large fish tank would do. I like the Sterilite because they're lighter. You can move them around more easily. Fish tanks are fine though, and that has its perks. We'll talk about that in a moment. But I would encourage you if you're setting up one colony, I would encourage you to buy two of the exact same containers. And the reason for that is we're going to want a an extra container at all times. So when we need to do mass cleanings or even just regular cleanings, we have another enclosure we can put them into. It makes things easier. Trust me on this one. I had to learn this one the hard way. So buy two containers. Now they don't need to be clear. They don't need to be transparent. They can be opaque. They don't require light. They like it dark. They hide when I take them out and go to do feedings and I have the lights on my table. They all scatter so they can be opaque. I currently use containers and the, the ones I have, uh, I think three of my colonies in are 23 inches by 12 inches by 16 inches or 58.42 by 30.5 by 40.64 centimeters. All, I think well, I'm looking around, we have four Sterilite bins. You could get higher ones. You could get bigger ones. That's perfectly fine. I'm just sharing what I currently use for mine. First thing you're going to want to do is ventilate them. Now, I what I like to do with mine, and this is I learned this by trial and error because I screwed up once and it was almost a bad situation. I like to ventilate the top. If you have one of those plastic sterilite containers, you can take the top out. You can mark a square on the top of it. And what I did is if you have it, and again, you have to be a little handy for this. I'm sure there's other ways to do it that don't require these specific tools. But what I usually use is a drill and a jigsaw. And what I do is I mark the two corners of the square that I want to cut out, connect them with a Sharpie, drill holes in the two corners, and then connect those holes with the skill saw. So I cut a nice big square right out. I think probably about 10 inches or so across. You want a lot of ventilation. You want airflow with these guys. And then I use some basically screen fabric. The, you know, I think it's made out of like plastic or something. The screen fabric. You could use just regular screen. Something screen that's going to allow a lot of airflow, but not be so big. You know, you don't want the holes so big that in theory, if a roach got up there, it could climb out. That's my thing. They shouldn't be able to get up there. They shouldn't be able to climb out, but I just like to be double cautious. So you can buy that fabric. It's the same stuff you use to replace your screens, like your doors and your windows and stuff. So you're going to take that pair of scissors, cut it to size. So if you made a 10-inch square, you want to make it like a 12-inch square, give yourself a nice lip around the side. And then what I did with all mine, which were great, you could use silicone as well. 
but back in the when I first put these together, I did not have silicone. So a bead of silicone around it, put it in it, let the silicone dry. That'll hold it on probably fairly well. I like to use hot glue. I've used hot glue. So bead of hot glue all the way around. As I go, I just I hold the screen in place. I lay the hot glue on, make sure it squishes down through that screen, squishes to the plastic, and that works really well. And I've had, again, I started my first one in 2015. And one of them just started to peel up a little bit in the side. So all I need to do is go in there with a little hot glue and fix it up. So the hot glue works great. Nice, big, open airflow. I don't, I, one of the mistakes I made the first time was I drilled a bunch of holes around the side. And there were probably pretty big, decent sized holes around the, all, around the top. So it shouldn't have been able to escape. But what you have to be careful of is the nymphs are very small. And if you're using the... We're going to, in the inside, we're going to use egg cartons. I use the big egg cartons, the 12 by 12 ones or 10 by 10, the, the big egg carton ones. If you lean those up against the side and it's close enough, they can get out those holes. And we had a situation once where we set them up and I left one of the egg cartons leaning against the side, didn't realize it. I was doing some feeding. I look, a roach runs across the table. I go, oh, I look, they're just running right out using it as a ladder and coming out. So I don't put a lot of them around the side. If you want to put one around the side, that's fine. I would use, again, that wire mesh and glue it on or fix it some way. I'll share this as well. I just did a little experiment where I have uh, several because I replaced the lids on my Exoterras, the 12 by 12 lids with the CNM terrarium ones and the old lids I had just sitting around with the mesh. So what I did was I used one of those for one of my tops. I cut the hole out, set the lid in, used black silicone, laid that thing in there with a thick bead of silicone and I used one of those for ventilation. Worked pretty well and at least I was trying to find something to do with those tops. So big old ventilation port in the top. Be careful if you put it on the sides. I don't use it on the sides as long as you're not covering up. I would say just ventilate the top. You're going to want to buy some of those egg cartons. Uh, you can. Uh, here's one way to do it. If you're, if you're somebody who uses a lot of eggs, start saving up those cartons. It saves you a lot of money right there. I don't use the styrofoam ones. I use the ones that are the uh, pulpy, papery, cardboard material. You can also buy them on Amazon. I bought them in packages of... 15, I think, 15 to 20. They're usually about anywhere from 15 to 19 bucks, which is a little pricey, but when you need them, you need them. And they measure, they're right around like 11.75 by 11.75 or so. So about 12, 12 inches square. You can also find these if you have a farm supply store. A lot of them, farm supply stores will sell them. And I once got them at a great price at a farm supply store. So that would be their best bet if you're trying to find some of these to set them up. Find a tractor supplier, farm, someplace that sells farm stuff and go there and they will usually have them for sale and they're very inexpensive. That's the best way to go. I like those. If you can't save up and, and what ends up happening is we used to save up the egg things and then I'd use them all up and I'd have to buy some more anyway. So you're going to want to grab some of those as well. That's what we're going to use for the roaches to be on. Now, now there's a couple different ways to set the egg cartons up and I'm going to be honest, Billy and I don't do anything special with the egg cartons. Basically, I will rip them up, make some like structures so that I kind of stack them on each other so that they can climb around and get to the different levels. Because the fun thing about the egg cartons is when you flip them over, all the roaches are underneath them and then you can pluck them out and use them for feeding or whatnot. I've seen other people that create basically a, a way to a rack system inside the actual Tupperware that allows using like wires or supports so that you can put all of almost like a beehive where you have the hive where you pull it out and it's, it's standing straight up, something like that. 
And those are much neater. I, if that's something you want to do, that's fine. I never got around. I thought about doing it, never got around to doing it. And just having the egg cartons kind of stacked in there works well for me. The only time, the only reason the way I do it can sometimes become an issue is because if the cartons are always kept flat and roaches start to die, they get into the cartons, they die in the cartons. It can make it easier to clean them up and take them out. But if you get behind on your cleaning, they start to rot in there, then you have to replace the, uh, the cartons. So some people do it. They like it that they're standing up. I like it that they're laying down. I've had great luck with that. The babies can get down to the bottom and hide in the frass. Works great for me. Now, to keep things from getting nasty in there, you're going to want to use something to put your food and whatever you water them with. If you're using vegetables, if you're using, I'll get into what we use. But what I, I've used several things in the past. I've used tops of containers, like the tops of the containers you get from like the cylinders of iced tea, those shallow, whatever you use, you want it to be shallow because you want the babies, the little nymphs to be able to get up there and get this up. It's just to keep the stuff organized for mixing because I do have a dry section and my section with my vegetables and stuff. And you want to keep those apart to reduce mold and just general overall nastiness if they start to mingle and get out in the enclosure. So I use whatever it is you're going to use, the lid to something. I've used lids to 16 ounce deli cups, like sit down. So just enough that there's a little room, a rim that I can put some food in there. I've cut down half gallon milk jugs, cut the bottom off about an inch high and then cut like a little U out of it. So it brings the front down even more so they can get in that way to put stuff in. Anything will work. You just want something shallow that will hold the food stuff that you're going to be using and keep it separated. Now, as for food, we when we first got into it, I bought a bunch of those water gel things that you add the water to, and it didn't work. I, I don't like it. I, to each his or her own. Anybody that wants to use it, that's fine. I'm not saying it's bad. It just didn't work for me. I wanted something better. So what we moved to quickly, we also did the fresh fruits and vegetables. So I heard everybody, you got to give them a great balanced diet. You got to give them greens and fruits and everything else. That sounds great. And I guess for people that if you're caring for just the roaches, it's it's a good deal. But here's the problem we had with it. In the hotter, warmer summer months, when it gets really hot in there, you're putting fresh fruit and vegetable, that stuff starts breaking down and decomposing very quickly. And before you know it, you're infested with fruit flies. And this is what happened the first summer we kept them. We were putting together all these little mixes of vegetables and fruits and everything and washing them all off ahead of time because you got to be careful. I was always afraid of buying fruits and vegetables that they may have been exposed to pesticides. You didn't want to introduce that to the roaches and then your spiders. So you'd wash everything off. You'd cut it all up. Billy would make this beautiful salad of all this stuff. We'd put it in there. A bunch of them would start eating. Within the next day, it was a mess. It's smelled. There was flies everywhere. So we moved away from that. And now what we use, and this is where great for us, baby carrots. So the little carrots that they shave down, which is great because they've shaved down all the stuff that hopefully was in contact with the pesticides. You can still rinse them off, but it makes me feel safer. And we use potatoes. And she, Billy's lately has been taking the potatoes and cutting them into slices and putting them in there. The potatoes and the carrots last a lot longer. The roaches love them. It supplies moisture without keeping things too humid, without misting the enclosure, without using those little water crystals. And they get nutrients out of it. Some days, like every once in a while, we'll run out of dry food and I'll just throw that stuff in. They eat the, they eat it so quick. It's amazing. It's like in the cartoons when you're a kid where somebody would walk into a piranha-infested water and the piranhas would come over and like, and then there were just bones. How oh, you like my sound effects there? It's like that. They eat when they're summertime, when they're active, the metabolism is up. They can go through carrots like you wouldn't believe. They can go through potatoes like you wouldn't believe. Just to give you an example, I was up here uh, two mornings ago. I brought a bunch of baby carrots up. 
dumped them in the smaller roach colony. The next day it came back up. They were all more than halfway gone, just completely chewed through. So for moisture, I like carrots and potatoes. If you want to throw leafy vegetables, if you want to do the vegetable thing, I totally understand. You're just going to need to be on top of those roaches. That's going to become a daily thing as opposed to maybe twice a week. Well, in the summertime, we're generally feeding ours twice a week because they're eating more. Or a once a week thing. You get away with once a week if you put enough stuff in there. So just know you can use that stuff, but it's going to keep, it's going to take more energy and more of your time away from your tarantulas and more time keeping them clean and fed. So just keep that not saying it's wrong to use. And for people that do it, awesome. We do every once in a while, we'll drop something strange in. I'll drop some leafy stuff in or whatnot. But they do seem to, A, they love the carrots and love the potatoes and eat the heck out of them. And B, uh, you can leave them in there for uh, several days, even when the temperatures are high, and not develop those gnats as quickly and not have the decomposition you'll have with some of the other stuff. So that's what we use for moisture. For the dry food, we've experimented with that. We used to use a mixture of oats and fish flake. And then we heard the fact that with dubia especially, they can store, they don't need the extra protein. They're already protein rich and they will store extra protein as a type of acid that can be harmful to some reptiles. I don't think it's ever been proven with tarantulas. So we backed off a little bit. I still every once in a while will add some fish flakes to it, but not a lot. It's usually cornmeal and oats for us, maybe with a, a little sprinkle of the fish food if we have. We haven't used it in a while, though. And what Billy does, she puts it in a blender, basically turns it into a mash, and we have that in our little Quaker Oats containers here that I spoon out. So the, when I feed them, it'll be the carrots, the potatoes on one side in the little shallow dish. On the other side, it's going to be the mash. They eat both beautifully, and I've used that for just about everything. We've used it for all of our roaches and our crickets. So... That's what we use now. If anybody else has a recipe, feel, feel free to chime in. But that's what's worked great for us. Stuff is readily available at your local the grocery store. If you have a blender, you know, spend uh, an hour just grinding a bunch of it up so you have a bunch of it on hand. It lasts a, a long time. Just keep it in the original container. We just pour it all out, mix it up, pour it back into those containers, and we keep it there and store it. And speaking of which, I got to make more because I just went to feed them yesterday. There isn't a lot left. But that's what we use to feed them. It has worked great for us. Now, as for how often you have to feed them, as I mentioned earlier, if the temperatures are warmer, they, they're eating machines. They'll keep eating, eating both, and the summertime is when I have to be extra careful to make sure the other day. And, and the good thing is roaches, if they run out of food, they're going to be fine, but it's not optimal for breeding and obviously caring for your roaches. But the other day, I went up there to check on them. It had been like a week and a half, and I didn't hadn't fed them, and I went through, and they had eaten everything. So... Had to quickly feed them again. So keep in mind that when it's warmer, you're going to feed them more often. In the wintertime, when we're not worried about breeding and them reproducing, they don't eat nearly as often or as much. So that's something to keep in mind. So as I mentioned in the beginning, we made some mistakes when we first started off because I originally planned on getting these to start a colony to have them constantly reproducing and feeding. And first I had heard that they had to be kept at 85 to 90 degrees or else they wouldn't live. And that's not true. These, both species we're going to talk about can be kept at room temperatures, but much like spiders, what will happen is they just, their metabolism slow down. A, they won't grow nearly as fast. So if you're trying to grow up a colony and you've bought a bunch of babies and you're trying to get adults to breed, it's going to take you quite some time. I believe I read somewhere that if kept at like 60 degrees, bee dubia can take 10 times as long to go through their life cycle. So that's that's a pretty profound difference with the, the higher temps compared to the lower temps. So what we found is that originally we were keeping them in the high 60s, low 70s most of the year. They were growing slowly. There wasn't any pairing. There wasn't any breeding. We weren't getting any baby, babies. And then the summer would show up where the tarantula room would go up. That's when the breeding happens. So 
Basically, these guys need to be kept in the 80s or 80 degrees above 80 degrees or 26.7 Celsius to breed. And that's what we now we have a system where the wintertime, I don't do breeding because I don't want to heat. I'm not going to spend the money heating them during the wintertime. They do just fine. But during the summertime where it's always 80, like yesterday was 84 in here, day before 85, 86. When it's always in the 80s, that's their natural time to breed, so I don't need any extra heat. It works great. Now, if you don't have those temperatures in your room or you want to breed them, you're going to want to use a heat source. One thing you can use are ceramic heaters. You can make that little port on the top with your ventilation. Use a thicker, obviously something thicker than just the you know thin wire mesh, something that can hold that heat lamp. Put a heat lamp on there. Keep them warm at all time. If you want to use heat mats, then you're better off using a glass terrarium because I don't think you're supposed to put heat mats on plastic. So glass terrarium, heat mats, again, you want to raise the temperature up. Or you could use a glass terrarium with just one of those typical reptile tops, the ones that are like kind of open, have the wire mesh, the thick wire mesh. Those would be fine with a little heat lamp or something on top of it. So know that if you want them to breed, you do need, they will live. If you just want to feed them off, they'll live in the lower temperatures. No problem. They're not going to die off on you. However, if you want them to breed, you do need 80 degrees or 26.7 C or higher. Now, another thing you want to watch out for if you're breeding is the males. Now, I screwed. I had one summer where they were doing great. I saw all these females with egg sacs. I saw a couple babies. I'm like, this is going to be great. This is the first summer we were actually getting some reproduction in the colony. And then a, a couple weeks go by and the babies are gone. The egg sacs are gone. There's nothing. I was like, what the heck is going on? Well, unfortunately, I let the population of males explode. I've noticed that when there are a lot of males, A, they're fighting for resources there. I've heard the males can eat the babies if there are not enough resources there. So if it's all of a sudden hot, they're eating through all the food, the males are going to eat that extra food. You're not going to get the baby. So you need to remove the excess males. I personally try to limit the number of males greatly. I don't leave a lot of them in there. Yesterday, I pulled out 150 males in one of my colonies, and that was with after pulling out 100 about two weeks ago. So you'll notice what will happen is the summer will come, or when you put the heat on them, you get a lot of males. And the good news is the males are great feeders as far as that's the stuff I like to feed out in the summer. During the summer, I don't buy crickets. I don't feel like driving up to the pet store and getting crickets or spending money on because usually at that point, I have my explosion of males. So what you want to do with the males, and this is what I encourage folks to do if they're trying to get the babies, have a separate container just for the males and make sure you spend an hour or so plucking those males out once a week. Go and pluck them all out. I throw them in the separate container. They have all the food. They have their potatoes or their carrots in there. I have one right now. It's just an old extra large uh, critter keeper that I use for the males. I pull them all out, a couple egg cartons, throw them all in there, and I use those to feed off the spiders. It can be tedious at times because the males are quick. I'm lucky that my <laughs> eye-hand coordination is still pretty decent because I just grab tongs and I sit there and I pluck them out and I see how many I can get out in a minute. I like to throw on some metal in the background. Yesterday it was orbit culture going in, plucking out a bunch of males, get them all in that other enclosure. And then the females can go ahead, have their babies, produce them. And usually what will happen, you have to do that two or three times and then you'll start seeing the baby population explode. So yesterday I went in there. This was my third time of plucking all the males out and there were a lot of babies. So for us, the summertime is when we get our pairing. We could easily do it all year round if I want to heat them, but I don't need it. This is this is the schedule that works for me. This is what works for me. The wintertime, I usually switch over, use crickets more often, and then summer again, it's all males. And uh, we've been, I've been on vacation since 
what was it, June 10th. And since then, I've only gotten crickets once. It's been all males from there. So make sure you remove the males. Make sure your resources don't run out. Make sure they have their dry food and their veggies at all times. When you're raising them up, sometimes there'll be days where you'll be like, oh my gosh, they went through that that quickly. That's fine. They're going to do fine. It's not going to harm them. But if you're trying to get babies, you want to make sure those resources are there for them. Make sure the babies can get into the containers to eat when they get. That's a big one that we screwed up on once where I tried these new bowls that I was going to use and I found the babies were on the bottom. They weren't able to get to the food the way they needed to. So make sure they can get to that. So for babies, temperatures need to be 80 or above. Males, limit. There's a thing out there. I've heard like one, I've heard a couple different things for these guys. I do like one male to 20 females. Maybe that's not the correct ratio. Somebody wants to correct me, it's fine, but it's worked well for me. And usually what ends up happening is it takes me a while to get all the males out of there anyway. So there's a point where there's a lot of males running around breeding, a lot of egg sacs, and I pull all the males out the best I can, let those egg sacs come out. And usually by that time, a couple weeks go by, more males have matured and we have no problem. But I try to really remove the majority of the males so they're not overpopulated and fighting for those resources. I have folks ask me if you need to remove the nymphs. I normally don't at first. I have before. I've, I've taken nymphs out and started a new colony with all my nymphs. I've done that before. It depends, honestly, what you're looking for. Sometimes it's easier if you're feeding out a bunch of nymphs to have them all in one place and kind of keep track of your numbers. Last year, I left the nymphs in to a point, and then I moved them into another enclosure, and we started a brand new colony with all the nymphs there. Personally, I think that it's time-consuming enough to pull the males out. It can be extra time-consuming to get those little teeny nymphs out. So it's totally up to the keeper what they want to do with them. Now, one thing that gets asked quite a bit is uh, how do you avoid escape? Well, the good thing, as we mentioned before, they can't climb smooth surfaces. So if the plastic is smooth and clean, they're not going to climb it. Do be careful, though, because those if you're using the plastic containers, they can get staticky. You can get a buildup of the food, the dust from the food on it, and they can kind of get some purchase on that. Not a lot, though. I've never had any real issue with that. If you're scared about losing them when feeding, because they can be wily little boogers. You pick them up with the tongs, all of a sudden they flip around, they're out, and they move quickly. Then what I would encourage you to do is when you feed, put your enclosures that you're feeding that have the spiders in that you're feeding in a shallow, like you can buy those long, shallow Sterilite tubs that are only like six inches high or so and like three feet long and two feet across. Put one of those down. And put your enclosures in that when you feed. And that way, if the God forbid you're transferring it over and it drops, you have an extra barrier between you and the rest of the house. And what they'll do is they'll just complete they'll run around in circles. They won't be able to climb it. They'll run around in circles and you can catch it and put them back in. So that's a good way to keep them out, uh, keep them from getting out. Males, keep in mind, males have wings. Can they fly like a beetle or a fly or a bee? No, they can't. But you'd be surprised sometimes they'll be on an egg carton and the egg carton's leaning against the top. It's only a few inches from the top, and they'll kind of make a jump for it and they'll get the flying going and they'll go out. So just be careful. I haven't had any like fly out of the enclosure and out into the house, but they, when you see them fly, you notice they can get some distance with it. I've had folks ask about whether or not you need Vaseline around the edges. That's one way of keeping insects or animals that can climb from going over the top. No, I'd never use that. And that'd just be a, a disaster as far as I'm concerned. I've had, had to use Vaseline with other species before, and it's great until you have to clean them out. And then it's a nightmare. So no Vaseline, just make sure whatever container you got have has high sides. Make sure that if you put your ventilation holes, if you drill ventilation holes, that they're up top around the top lip and that you don't lean the egg cartons against it so they can get through that. And then make sure you keep the sides clean. Every once in a while, go in there with damp paper towels and just wipe down the sides of the enclosure and make sure there's no dust so they can't climb that. But they're very easy to contain. Are they easy to catch? That can be tricky. That's one of the things that drives people nuts is they're very, very quick. They seem to be like you go to grab them with the tongs and where you reach for them, they've already gone an inch in another direction. It's hilarious, but I've gotten pretty good at handling them. A, a good way if you're doing feedings 
and you're going to be feeding a lot of them out is to get a bunch of them in like a plastic cup and then just pour out a couple of them for the tarantulas. It saves some time there. But that's basically all there is to it. That's what we do with ours. It, it's worked great for us. Again, the changes that I would tell people to make is if you want to make sure you have them all year round, then you're going to have to heat them during those cooler months. If you're in a place that's not already warm, I've had folks that got them in that live in locales that are warm all year round. They're like, man, I, they explode. And that is something to keep in mind that people will ask, when should I start getting or get into a roach colony? Or when would it be smart for me to think about getting a roach colony? If you're using B lateralis, they reproduce very, when they reproduce, they reproduce quickly and you get a lot of them and they grow quickly. So I've heard a lot of folks that get the B lateralis colonies. They're like, this is great. We're getting babies. Next thing you know, they have way more roaches than they'll ever be able to deal with. So just make sure you're aware of that, that you have a big enough collection to support it. Or some cases, I know folks that raise them and they have like little groups of local keepers and stuff and they get together with them and they sell some of them, the extras off to them. That's one way to do it to make sure that you don't end up with just thousands of extra roaches that you don't know what to do with. That's one of the reasons why Billy and I only breed during the summer, have them breed during the summer, don't heat during the winter is because of the fact we did have an explosion one summer where it was like, I don't know what I'm going to do with all these. And I was feeding those things off forever, which I guess if I wanted to avoid using crickets all completely, that would have worked fine. But I do like breaking out my crickets in the wintertime. So that's what we do with the B lateralis for the B dubia. Very, very similar. We're going to set up our enclosures the same way. We're going to get the big Tupperware container. I think ventilation is huge and more important with these than maybe even the B lateralis. That's one thing that I've noticed with my B dubia and one thing that I learned the hard way. They don't do well if you put them in a container. It doesn't have a lot of ventilation and it gets humid. It kills them off very quickly. It's important that you keep that airflow, that they have good ventilation and that you keep the humidity down. So when setting up a container for the B dubia, you might even want to put a larger vent in the top, vent that whole thing if you want to. I've noticed that since for a, a couple years, I kept mine in a Tupperware container that I drilled holes in both sides on and sort of like something I would use for tarantulas. And I was noticing I was getting a lot more deaths than I was expecting. They weren't I was getting some reproduction. I was getting some babies, but they were kind of dropping more than I would expect them to. And then finally, I read some information and said, listen, you really want to make sure more than anything, they have that good ventilation. It doesn't get too humid. I think that was happening. What was happening is in the hotter, humid summer months, it was getting too stuffy in there. It was killing them off. And I did notice winter, they were perfectly fine. I had no problems during the winter when it was cooler. It was when the summer when I was starting to see a lot more deaths than I was expecting. So lots of ventilation. You don't need, I've heard you don't need as big of a container as you would for maybe crickets or the other species of roaches. They like to congregate together. If you pull up the egg cartons, you'll see they're all kind of scrunched up in one spot. All the babies, the adults, it's actually kind of adorable. It makes it sad sometimes when I feed them off, but you don't need huge enclosures with them. So for example, the same size enclosure that I use for my B lateralis works for my B dubia, even though the B dubia are much bigger. Remember B dubia are big roaches. The females can get to be about two inches. The males are two inches, but more slender and a lot more, they have more wing on them or they have wings as opposed to the females. So that's something to keep in mind that they do get quite large. So same type container as the B lateralis, same type of use the egg cartons on the inside. Again, if you want to stand them up, that's fine. I kind of make little piles of them. You can rip a couple up to make them so they're off the ground and you lay them in there. I have, I have good luck with that, with feeding them. Same thing I use for my B lateralis. We use either 
carrots or potatoes for the moisture for the vegetables. These are ones that, again, that we tried the whole feeding them fancy stuff with and we're getting just really rancid enclosures. For the dry food, we use the mash that we make out of oats and cornmeal. That's worked great. Again, it's even more important with these guys that it's warmer for them to reproduce. I found that when kept cooler, they don't reproduce nearly as well. And as we already established, they don't grow as quickly. So, And they are slow, a little slower growing that I found than the B lateralis. So you want to make sure that you have those warm temps if you want them to reproduce. Once again, that's going to require heating during the wintertime if you need it. Also, like with the B. lateralis, if you're trying to get babies and nymphs, you don't want too many males in there. So I've heard one male to three females works. I've also heard one to six. You just don't want an overblown population of males in there. Just the same thing as the B. lateralis. So this is where the males are great to feed off. Unlike the females, and this is one of the issues that people have with B. dubia. I've had folks ask, why don't you just use B. dubia for everything? Well, A, they can burrow. B, they can play dead. When I wrote, I just went to feed one off yesterday, and the it was one of my Zanesta species. As soon as she touched it with her legs, it played dead. The spider eventually wandered off. And then after the spider wandered off, a few minutes later, the roach went and buried itself, and I had to dig it out. So they, and then there's some things that don't take them at all. And I've had people go, oh, well, mine take everything. That's great. But I have found with the bee dubia, I have some spiders that just don't take them. So if you're using bee dubia for feeders, the trick is to crush their heads. That makes them wander around instead of burrowing. That makes them a more enticing target for a hungry tarantula. However, the good thing is if you're feeding off males, the males, because they're males and you're looking for females, they wander around anyway. And they're ones that I found are really good if I'm trying to feed some of my arboreals, like my piece of Lotharia, a larger meal. The males will wander around. They'll climb up stuff. They'll go right to the piece of Lotharia. The piece of Lotharia snatch them up. So Feed off the males if you're getting too many. Keep those temperatures up if you want babies. Don't let things too get get too humid. Now, earlier in the podcast, I said that if you're going to set up an enclosure for these guys, set up two identical enclosures. And here's the reason why. Cleaning. Cleaning can be, if you keep on it, it's not a big deal. You want to get in there every time you're feeding them. Pull out any dead ones. You know, the frass, here's the thing with the frass. Frass is roach poo, basically. With the frass, I believe, I know with bee dubia, the babies eat the frass. So if you go in there and clean out all the frass all the time, you're taking away what the babies are going to eat. So you don't want to clean it all out of there. And that's where it gets tricky because you want to clean enclosure, but you don't want to take all the poop out. Same thing, I believe the bee lateralis nymphs will do the same thing. So you don't want to clean all the frass out. I've had good luck both of my, well, I started, it was an accident. In when I ordered B. lateralis a couple years ago, there there were some buffalo beetles in with them. And I have a nice little colony of buffalo beetles that will come out and they eat the dead stuff. So I never have any problem with dead B. lateralis roaches because usually the little colony of buffalo beetles I got in there eats through them. So I keep the frass until it gets out of control. When the frass starts getting to the point where it's building up too much, I take part of it out. As I mentioned earlier, those egg cartons can become kind of nasty after a while. Usually, I usually do it like twice a year. I go and get new egg cartons. I shake out all the roaches off the old egg cartons. I put brand new egg cartons in there. That keeps things nice and clean. But every once in a while, once a year or so, it's usually time to clean the whole colony. And that's where I find having the extra enclosure set up makes things so much easier. Because what you can do, you set up the extra, you move the food and water dish over. If you've been keeping those egg flats clean, if you got fairly new egg flats in there, the best way to do it is to take those egg flats and just move them right over. Into, I, I usually put a couple new ones in there, move the old ones right over into the other enclosure, and that makes it so much easier than having to go through and shake them all off because then what ends up happening inevitably is you're going to be shaking off some of the old poop in there. Although you want a little bit of the old poop. I carry some of the old poop over, the old frass over just for the babies, but... 
it it's I find it easier to just be able to take them, most of them and drop them in there. Then what's going to happen, unfortunately, if you're doing, and we'll talk about both sets of roaches, if you're doing B. lateralis or B. dubia. B. lateralis, some of the little baby nymphs will hide in the poop. Same thing with B. dubia. So what I usually like to do is when I move most of them over into that new enclosure, I will take the old enclosure and I will put egg flats in there on the frass and leave it overnight. And usually what happens is the babies come out of the frass because they're not, this works especially well with the B lateralis. I leave the flats here, the babies come up, get on the flats. The next morning I come and take the flat out. There's hundreds of little babies on it. I can dump those in. So it saves you having to sift through the frass that you want to throw out to get the babies out. With the B dubia, sometimes you do a little burrowing and I found the babies will sometimes hide it. And sometimes you end up having to pick through, but I have had pretty good luck of leaving the egg cartons in there and having the babies again come up and get on the egg carton so I can just move those into the new enclosure. And then usually with the B-dubia, I pick through and try to find all the babies in there. I, get, I have a little sharp pair of tongs. I have a cup and I go through and just as I find them, I pick them up, throw them into the cup. That's all there is to it. Then what you can do is you can dump out your frass, the rest of the frass. Again, I carry a little bit over for the babies, dump out the rest of the frass, clean the whole enclosure, get it all ready. And that's the one you're going to use to put them in the next time you go and rehouse them. I literally just did that this summer with my B. dubia and with one of, I still have to clean out one of my other B. lateralis colonies and it worked out great. Next day came in, took the stuff out, shook the babies out, picked up, went through the frass, anything else in there? Nope. Dumped it out, cleaned it up. It's all ready and good to go for the next time. And as far as just regular maintenance, again, keep the food, make sure the food's rotten. You get it out of there. If the food's decomposed, you're getting a lot of flies. It's starting to, I, I've had times where it gets really hot up here and the stuff starts to kind of putrefy and melt. Get it out of there, clean it out, clean up your water dishes, put in your new food, pull out. This is especially important for bee dubia. Bee lateralis, again, I have those little beetles in there. They've been doing a great job. I don't find a lot of the dead adults in there. They seem to die off and they're fine. But with bee dubia, because they're so big, the females are two inches and there's a lot of meat in there for lack of a better term. They rot rather quickly. So there's been times where a bunch of my old females have died. It's only been like 24 hours. I come up to their transfer room. I can smell that there's some death in there and you got to go in and pull those things out. So that's one thing you want to be careful of is to make sure that you go in, especially with the bee dubia, because again, they're larger, pull out those dead specimens, the dead mature males, the dead mature females as quickly as possible to keep them from decomposing and really stinking up and, and creating a toxic environment in that enclosure. So cleaning, not that bad. You should be checking on, I would assume with most roach colonies, at least once a week. If you're using the fresh, veg fresh vegetables and stuff, probably twice a week to clean out the old ones or to refill. Right now, the good thing is, again, when you have a bigger colony this time of year, they go through that stuff so quick, it doesn't have a chance usually to decompose. But you want to make sure you clean that up. If the frass is getting out of hand, don't freak out every time. You need some frass in there. You need the poopy. You keep the poopy in there. Don't get rid of all the poop. But if you uh, want to clean it up and you start seeing that stuff really build up, you can remove a good chunk of it. Just make sure there's some in there for the babies. Also, if you want to make things easy on yourself, couple times a year, replace those egg cartons. Make sure that you have fresh egg cartons in there. And then once a year, clean the whole thing out. And that's about it. If you have it, obviously, if you have a situation where things are getting toxic, something died off, you didn't catch it, the food is attracted a bunch of flies, then it might behoove you to do a, a new, a re, I rehouse them, but to clean up the thing earlier. But that's all there is to it. It's really not that difficult to keep them if you stay on them. If you don't stay on them, and I will call myself out for this, I had one colony of B lateralis 
that I let get away from me, and it was a nightmare. There was frass. There was, like, it was nasty, and I had to completely start over, move everything out to a new enclosure, clean this thing out. It took forever because the baby, there was so much frash. The babies were hiding in it. it. The cage, it was just gross, and it was not healthy for the, probably for the roaches, and I was afraid to feed those roaches out to my spiders. So make sure you keep on your spot maintenance. Don't let it get away from you because it is easy to do when those populations start exploding. When you have a bunch of babies in the summer and you go from having maybe 500 little roaches in there to maybe 2,000 roaches in there and they're growing quickly, suddenly that can become a little too many roaches for that container and that's when you get a situation where things get out of hand quickly. So that's another reason why it's nice to have those extra enclosures. Right now I have three going for my bee ladder house. I have two active colonies and then I have my extra containers that I can put them in when I change them. So that would be the trick to them. As far as pros and cons for each set of ro- for each type of roaches, pros for the bee lateralis: easy to raise and breed. The roaches—that's <laughs> what they do. They they breed. They're very hardy. I found they're very very hardy. I don't have a, an issue at all with losing adults mysteriously. They, they will accept a, a myriad of conditions. They do well when it's a little cooler. They do well when it's hot and humid. No issues there. The adults are about the same size, or especially adult males are about the same size as banded crickets. We'll get into the two types of crickets I use in a moment, which is great for feeding most tarantula species. They move around and are active, which stimulates hunting instincts. So unlike the bedubia, sometimes it will burrow and hide. These guys are always moving around. I found I've never had an issue with any of my tarantulas taking B. lateralis roaches. No odor. As long as you keep on top of that husbandry, they are very low odor, especially compared to crickets. It seems like you lose a cricket and all of a sudden the whole container stinks. And they can't climb smooth surfaces, so they're easy to contain. Cons, they're invasive. Warmer climates, apparently there's a big worry that these could get into a house, say in Florida, and infest the house. I will tell you it did not happen in Connecticut because I once knocked on, I can't believe I'm admitting to this, I had a container of a bunch of little juveniles on the table, probably three or four hundred, and I knocked it over under the floor. And I just about freaked. We got a that I scooped a bunch of them up quick into the container. We got a vacuum up, vacuum a bunch of them up, but a bunch of them got out. And two months later, never saw another one. They didn't infest. They didn't get a house. I Billy, I Billy was waiting to do baiting. She's like, I don't think I have to bait. I don't think they're going to survive. It's winter time. They didn't. We never saw another one. So. Something to keep in mind, but I wouldn't take the chance during the summertime. I could see in summertime if they got out, them being an issue. I could see being if you're in a warmer climate, that can be an issue. Um, some people are allergic to the frass. That's something that's popped up repeatedly back when I was researching these, that the poo can actually, the dust from it can get to people's allergies. So that's something to be careful uh, about. Males can fly a bit. That's something to keep in mind. Again, they're not going to just fly out of the enclosure and go, but you'd be amazed if they get a little headwind in there, they'll take off and end up, you know, several feet across the room from you. And finally, one more con is that not everybody can get these. They're illegal in some areas. You're not allowed to have them. I've spoken to people from other countries. I've spoken to some people from other states. They can't have the roach. I think maybe Canada can't have roaches either. So that's something to be aware of that depending on the state or where you're living, what country you're living in, you may not be able to get any roaches. And now, bee dubia, pros, not invasive. If they get out, they die. I've had, I had a couple males get out once. I later found them in the tarantula room dead. They don't last very long. So that's awesome. Again, can't climb those smooth surfaces. Just be careful of dust. Great for larger spiders. I love using these after a larger one of my Formictibus, Pamphibedius, Therophosa. Even some of the Gramasol, the big ones, when they molt and I want to fatten them up a little bit after a molt, I love using these. I hate feeding out the females. 
I, I drives me. I I love the females, but I'm getting a lot of old females now, and boy, are they meaty and juicy. So I've been feeding some of those out. I feel bad doing it, but they make great meals for larger tarantulas. So if you're keeping the big ones. These are a lot more cost-efficient and practical sometimes in feeding a bunch of little bilateralis or little crickets to them. As we've already stated, they're very easy to raise. If you're keeping them alive just for feeding off, super simple. They're they're easy to, to keep just as long as you're using them as food source. To breed them, a little more difficult, but again, not that terribly difficult. Uh, cons, they're not legal everywhere, just like the other ones. Adult females are quite large, and when they die, they can decompose very quickly, and it stinks. So heads up, that's something you need to, it's not, I have never had this issue really with my B. lateralis, with my B. dubia. If you get a bunch of old females dying at the same time, it's hot, it's stinky. Um, as we talked about, some spiders won't take them. I've seen spiders that just don't take the bee dubia for whatever reason. They can burrow and they can play dead. So that makes them a little trickier to use. You got to kind of crush their heads, which can be super, super nasty. Temps are more important for breeding. So although they're not that difficult to breed, you do need to be more cognizant of your temperatures. And they seem to be a little more susceptible to high humidity that seems to not be particularly great for them where the other roaches I've never seen an issue with it and they can be a little more pricey to set up an actual colony that's one thing I was kind of surprised at and I mentioned earlier alluded to earlier in the podcast is the fact that it can be expensive to get some of these guys so heads up it will be an investment 50 100 I've seen 150 dollars for a big starter colony to start off with so you can feed some off but also have some babies but if you get them going that's a good investment because you'll never have to buy them again and speaking of not having to buy them again, I shouldn't say that I do I've had people ask me this do you just keep the same roaches and just keep letting them breed and inbreed no usually once every year or two I will buy a bunch more dubia and a bunch more bilateralis and add them to my existing colonies to add some fresh blood a lot of times I'll try to buy them from someplace difference and they're not coming from the same person. I will do that usually about every two years. I think I just did it two years ago. I didn't do it this year. Two years ago, bought a bunch of B. dubia, new B. lateralis, refresh the colonies, add some new blood in there. It just makes me feel better to know that there's some more diversity to the genetics that are being passed around. Now, as far as mistakes that people make when starting colonies, I've alluded to most of these as we went through the podcast, but I'll just go over them separately. Number one, a lot of folks will come up, they have like three or four spiders and they go, I want to start a colony. Heads up, if you get a good active colony going of either of these species, you're going to have more roaches than you know what to do with. And I've had people that have contacted me many times via email. Hey, Tom, would you like some roaches? I started a colony. I have so many, I don't know what to do with them. And so just be aware that if you have a small collection, you're starting a colony, it could take a little while to get the colony going. So you may have more spiders by them. But if that's going to be a thing, you think you're going to get a lot of roaches, try to find a way to either trade off or sell off the extra roaches. Find somebody that will want them so you can get rid of them so you don't get stuck with a lot of them. Another thing people do is they don't give them enough ventilation. I think that's something I screwed up on before. Not having high temperatures and not getting babies, that's a big one. If your temperatures are too low, you're going to get slower growth rate, which is fine if you're just trying to feed them off, but not if you're trying to get them to reproduce and have babies. Sometimes I think for some folks, they they put them in enclosures that are too small. You want to make sure that at least for the B lateralis, you give them some room. B dubia can be kept in smaller spaces. And then the big thing I, I see that people do, and I did this as well, is we go out, we buy all these <laughs> feeder insects, and the idea is we're going to raise them up and have a feeder colony that keeps it sustains itself. But what we end up doing is feeding off too many of them at first. And I've done this, either feeding off too many males, accidentally feeding off too many of your females, feeding off so many of your roaches that they don't get a chance to really reproduce. That's something to be aware of. And I've had other people that have expressed the same thing to me. They're like, yeah, I screwed up. I bought this 
feeder colony of B. dubia that had 100 in them. I'm like, this is going to be great. I'll grow up some and I'll have some to feed off. And next thing you know it, I only had about 20 left. They weren't breeding and I had to buy more. So that's something to keep in mind. But overall, they're fairly foolproof. I'm not into, like, I'm not going over the top with their husbandry. And this is just, again, stuff that works for Billy and I, and we have pretty good luck with them. So I do like them for larger collections. I do like always having them. I love having them for the summer when I don't feel like buying the crickets. And I love having them when I have something molten. I have these big, fat, juicy roaches to feed them. So if you want to go completely away from crickets, totally get it. Could you do it by raising up just roaches? Absolutely. You just follow the tips here. Make sure they're kept warm enough. You should have no problem whatsoever. Now, I did say at the beginning of the podcast, I would cover crickets a little bit because folks know that I use crickets and they often wonder how I keep them alive. Let me just tell you, crickets, I've been doing this a long time. I've experimented a long time. I, th- I think overall, I've got my system down. However, would I ever raise crickets? Heck no. I don't think I'm anywhere near the point where... So the information I give you, if you want to raise your own crickets and have babies and grow them up, I'm not your man. I'm just... This is how I keep them and manage to keep the ones I get alive. Now, one thing I will say right off the bat, I talked about earlier about you can get them in bulk. I buy them in boxes of 1000 now, and it costs me about 25 bucks. I think. So if you consider the prices of a pet store, not a bad deal. And I only get them maybe once every, I think now it's like every six weeks or so, sometimes two months. Winter, it's usually two months because I can keep them alive longer. Summertime, I'm usually feeding them out a lot more quickly because depending on the humidity and temperature here, it can be tricky keeping them alive. But not a bad deal overall. I don't mind spending that money on it. I know some folks be like, why do that when you have the roaches? Because crickets, are everything takes them. They're so easy to feed out. I can catch them quickly. It's just easier for me to use them when I'm doing a large feeding, especially when I'm in school and I'm doing my feedings at night when I get home from work or on my weekends. So that's why I continue to use them. The problem with crickets is, and you've probably noticed this, one dies, next thing you know it, they're all dead. They, I believe they release something. It might be ammonia. There's something the crickets release when they die that if you don't get them out of there quickly, more of them die, it creates more of it, and it kills them off. So it's like you'll have a mass die off very quickly if you don't get the dead ones out of there. And that can make it tricky. So if you can't keep them alive and they all start dying, next thing you know it, your thousand crickets is down to a handful of them and a bunch of dead ones at the bottom. The other issue that I have that makes it difficult is when you buy crickets in bulk, they ship them, and usually boxes are like... I don't know, mine are like 11 by 6 by 10 or something. They're not particularly big boxes or 11 by 11 by 11. They have a tiny little plastic vent in the side and crickets need good ventilation. These boxes don't have good ventilation. So what happens? One of them, there's not good ventilation. A couple of them die. Next thing you know, you open the box, there's a bunch of dead ones. Now you know you're living on borrowed time with the ones that are still alive because they're going to die soon. So believe me, I get why people don't use crickets. There are two types of crickets I've used. One of them are banded crickets. Those are the ones I prefer. It's uh, Gryllus assimilis, I believe. And I believe, I have notes here. I'm not going to be actually <laughs> reading it. Gryllus assimilis, we'll go with. They're a bit smaller overall. They're called banded crickets because they have bands on them, but they are much easier to keep alive in different conditions. And they live longer than the other ones that are very popular. The house cricket or Archetta domesticus. These the house crickets are don't have the striping as adults. The, the specimens, adult specimens are large. They can get like an inch, an inch and a quarter. They're beefy. There's more meat on them. So I kind of like them for my bigger spiders. But they are, seem to be much less tolerant of suboptimal conditions. They die much more quickly, and I get I have much more issues with die-offs with them than I do with my banded crickets. So, for example, if I open up my banded cricket enclosure one morning, and I see a handful of crickets, and I pull them out, 
I'm fine. They'll be in there. They'll know I won't have any more deaths. They'll be fine. If I open up my house cricket ones, I see a bunch of dead ones and I pull them out. Chances are when I come back, you know, the next day, there's going to be a bunch more dead ones. So that's something to keep in mind. I love the banded crickets. I would used to buy my bulk crickets from Amazon and I was using this company where I would get the house crickets and I would have to feed those things out within a week and they'd all be dead every single time. It didn't matter if it was either too cold, too hot, too humid. Something would be wrong with the way they were shipped with the outside climate and they'd be dead in no time. Banded crickets never had that issue with it. So one thing right off the bat, you'll read things out there that say crickets need to be kept really warm. I have not found that to be true. I found that my crickets do better when it's cooler and drier. Humidity kills them. Humidity is the devil with crickets. It stinks because if it's you know cool and dry and I get crickets, I keep them forever. If it's the summertime and it's dry heat, no problems generally. If it's a humid day and I get crickets in, I know I have to feed those things out quickly because they're going to be dead within a week or two. So that's something to keep in mind for folks that live in humid areas. Not great for the crickets. They tend to die off very, very quick, quickly, you'll have a mass die-off and you really have to stay on pulling the bodies out of there. I found the crickets like a lot of space. So back in the day, I would keep them in little critter, critter keepers. Wasn't enough room. I now keep them in bigger containers like the ones I was describing earlier for the roaches with a lot of good ventilation. You want to make sure lots of room, lots of ventilation, lots of space. If you're getting a thousand vent, uh, crickets, big, big tub. Give them a lot of room. I use the same basic setup that I do with the roaches where it's a big tub. I cut the big hole in the top, put the wire mesh in there, make sure there's lots of ventilation, lots of egg cartons from the hide behind. I do the little shallow food bowl, little shallow water bowl, feed them the same thing, dry food. I, they love, absolutely love, they'll eat potatoes. They When they ship them, they usually come with uh, sectioned off potatoes in it. They'll eat potatoes, but they seem to really particularly love the carrots. We use the baby carrots for them all the time. Got to keep food supplied to them, carrots supplied to them. And my trick is, again, because my containers could probably be bigger for them. When I get a thousand of them, I take the box, I open up, I dump them into the enclosure, and then I feed off as many of them as I can that first day. So that first night, I probably feed off when I get my crickets. 200, 150, 200 of them, just to kind of ease the population a little bit. Because again, unlike some of the roach species we talked about, these the crickets don't do well if they're crammed together. That's where you're going to get a lot of those deaths very quickly. And as for cricket maintenance, I hate to say it, I kind of check on them daily. Usually when I get crickets, I'm feeding daily anyway, so it works for me. If I My routine, just in case anybody cares, I usually ordered the, the pet store that I get the crickets from is like a mile away from the school I work out. So what I'll do is we'll order the crickets, the box of crickets. I'll pick them up on a Monday. I go home, house the crickets in the container, and then I do a mass feeding and feed as many tarantulas as I can. Usually about 25 to 50 of the big ones right off the bat where I'm throwing in three, four, five crickets at a time. So I really thin those numbers out. And then each night after school, I come home and I feed again. So that box is getting, the population is dwindling. And usually if you don't have a big, you know, a lot of humidity, usually that's enough to keep them alive. If it gets too humid, if they're packed too tightly, if there isn't good airflow, if they were shipped in a way that they got exposed to heat, if they were shipped in a way that they got exposed to too cold temperatures, I'm sorry, these things are fragile. You're probably, well, if they're house crickets, you're probably going to have a lot of dead crickets sooner than later. If they are banded crickets, they will usually live a bit longer. So for folks always ask me, how do you keep them alive? I have, this is what, this is exactly what I do. 
and I've had pretty good luck with it. As soon as I recognized they needed good ventilation, as soon as I recognized I needed to use bigger containers with them, as soon as I recognized the fact that sometimes it's out of my control because if they were shipped and it's pouring out and it's 80% humidity here and it's warm, I open that box up, there's going to be a bunch of dead crickets and they're going to start dropping like flies. So get ready to feed them off quickly. The more I think about this, the more I know people are going to be asking me, and why do you still use crickets? But I will tell you, I can feed so quickly with crickets. And they're a little bigger than some of the, at least the bilateralis roaches. So I know I can drop crickets in and the spiders will take them. Now, what are the cons of crickets? Um, As we've established, they can mass die off. They can injure your spiders. If they catch a spider molting, they can injure the spider. They can bite a spider. They can be loud when they're chirping if you keep them in your house. Like mine are in a room that's away from the rest of the house, so you don't hear them. But as you know, when they get out, every once in a while I'll be doing a podcast and they're back chirping. That can be annoying, especially if you know, you're know sitting there having company over and your whole house sounds like crickets. They can be stinky. When they die, they stink. When they're not dead, they stink. That can be something that's what I hear from a lot of people. They can be smelly. And if you're buying small quantities of them, they can be expensive. That was why I started buying the bulk because I was getting, you know, 50, 100, 150, 200. I, at one point, I think I was, I paid 20 bucks for like 200 crickets. Now I pay $25 for a thousand. So do the math. It's, they can get pricey if you're buying small quantities of them. As far as pros, they're very readily available. They're not particularly expensive if you are not don't want to have your own colonies or you're not allowed legally to have your own colonies. If you buy them in bulk, you can usually get a good price on them. Everything takes them. They're active. When they you put them in a closure, they just run around like dummies and run right to the spiders, which makes sure the spiders get them. Uh, they just, again, they're convenient. They're, everybody has them. If you have a small collection, they're at pet stores. So I, I like them. Again, I use, I will continue to use them. They're just easier for me overall. Maybe someday I'll just get the roach colonies. I'll start heating them up and do them during the winter time. But I don't think so. It just takes me longer to feed the roaches because they're a little harder to catch for me at least. So crickets, that's what I do. The trick is lots of space, lots of ventilation. Try to keep them dry. I've actually moved them out of them. If my transfer room gets too hot, I've moved them downstairs. Billy's awesome with this. She'll let me bring them downstairs and we keep them where the air conditioner is on. And I will find they will, they will stay alive a lot longer in the cooler downstairs than they will in the warm upstairs. I think that's where people sometimes go wrong. I think that that's where I went wrong at first. The big thing is that I thought they, the hotter, the better. And I found that especially heat and humidity, I think the combination is heat and humidity that can be deadly to them. So that's what I do with the crickets. Feed them the same thing as the roaches, as I mentioned earlier. Oh, as far as cleaning them, I do clean the egg cart. I use the, when I buy them in the box of a thousand, it comes with a bunch of egg cartons. And what I will do is I will throw the, I remove the old egg cartons. I throw those out and I use those egg cartons. So basically I'm replacing the egg cartons every month and a half, two months when I get them. And it, but I'm not buying new egg cartons. I'm just using the ones that come in there. If you're using egg cartons, that would be something where if you have a mass die off, I would chuck the egg cartons and replace them. That's don't mess around with that. I've had situation before where I had a mass die off. I saved all the egg cartons. I bought some healthy ones, dumped them in there and they all died super quickly. So if you have a die off, you have a situation where the, they, you get behind, they're dying off, toss those egg cartons, completely clean out the enclosure, wipe it all down, clean it out, start fresh with your new batch. So you don't bring in any of those old contaminants and end up with another dead batch of crickets. So that's my discussion on how we keep the roaches, how I keep my crickets. Hopefully folks will find that helpful. Feel free to do what works for you. Is it the best way? Nope. Not saying that it's the way I do it and the way Billy and I do it. It works for us. 
Obviously, as we've mentioned, for folks who really want that constant supply of them, you might need some heat. You can experiment with what you want to feed them. There's nothing wrong with feeding them fresh fruits and vegetables and everything. Again, I just found that it wasn't practical. But for folks that want to spend a little more time on their care, want to check in with them daily, that's not a big deal at all. And they can work great. Again, I love it. And it's one of the reasons I have the two roach colonies as well as the crickets. A, the convenience of just always knowing that even if I run out of crickets, I have a food source here. And B, I like mixing things up a bit. I do like the idea of adding a little bit of diversity to what they're eating. So that's what we do. That's what works for us. Matthew, thanks so much for the question. It finally got me off my butt and got me putting together the the discussion for this, which I toyed with for quite some time and some for some reason or another, never got around to doing it. So that will do it for this one. As always, you can find me on Tom's Big Spiders, the podcast. You can find Spotify. People have been reading comments there. Just know I can't respond to the comments on Spotify, but if it appears on the page, it means I read it. I said, thank you. And it's now up so everybody can see it. Tom's Big Spiders. I just put up a video featuring the newest molts I've had. Summertime's here. Everybody's molting, even some surprises. Nikki, my Afana Pelmacalcotis just molted. I got some good shots of her. My Flamingo Kylis Arboricola molted, and luck was with me because I managed to get her to sit out in the open long enough to get some shots of her, and she's gorgeous. So that's all up. And before I go today, I do want to give a shout-out to Clams. Clams emailed me after listening to one of the podcasts where I discussed... The fact that for a lot of folks, keeping tarantulas, keeping inverts, these animals that people don't understand, is hugely instrumental in helping maintain mental health and helping to, how do I put keep folks from going down that really dark path when there's issues like depression and mental health issues. And it was, I'm not going to read the email. Uh, I thought about reading it. I'm not going to read the email. But suffice it to say, it was very humbling because a lot of it addressed the fact that for some folks and for clams, apparently, the podcast can be a little more important than just some goober rattling off about tarantula care, that it reminds them about their animals and how important their animals are and, and how important that is to keeping them positive mentally and keeping them fighting that fight and moving ahead. So we'll leave it at that. But Clams, uh, my thoughts are with you. Uh, To say that was a humbling email to read would be an understatement. I hope that things are improving. And please remember, you don't have to go through that kind of stuff alone. You Reach out. When it gets bad, reach out. Don't allow yourself to be isolated. Don't allow yourself to fight that by yourself. There's obviously help out there for if if things get really bad. So I do. I, this has come up quite a bit, and I think for a lot of folks that suffer from depression, PTSD, things of that nature, it's amazing to see how important this hobby is. I think these are, when I get emails like these, and when I hear from folks like these, it, it strikes a nerve. It really does. And I think for me, it it helps me kind of reframe what I do. Like I don't, I joke about what I do to friends and stuff. I, I talk about my geeky little hobby where I do videos and, and podcasts, but you hear something like this. And, and I have spent a lot of time talking to folks. I've had folks, a lot of folks email me over the years talking about how, just how important this hobby is and how in some cases it's saved and turned around their lives from substance abuse to depression, PTSD, whatever it may be. It's been instrumental in keeping them on this earth and getting them in a spot where they're mentally safe and healthy and able to enjoy their lives. And I think that's something that I sometimes miss. And sometimes it, it, when it reminds me of it kind of hits like a fist, like, Oh my gosh, this is, 
bigger than just talking about spiders. So that's it. I'm enough rambling. It's just uh, guys know that if you are somebody out there who is struggling, you don't have to do it alone. Reach out, get help. And again, <laughs> this is just something people that don't keep these animals will never understand how important it can be f- to have this hobby for many, many people. So clams again, keep fighting that good fight. I keep doing the podcast. I'll keep doing the videos and, uh, I'll look forward to hearing from you in the future. On that note, guys, as always, stay safe, take care of yourselves, and we'll catch you all next time.